Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Hypochondriac's Almanac and I'm very excited to be recording for you guys this morning. I am Sarah doing it solo today, could not get a co-host and the show must go on. In case you're wondering, this is the podcast for all of you out there who secretly think you have a new disease every time you have a sniffle, a slight twinge or a headache. It's not a tumor. We understand, we identify and we definitely have scoped out WebMD more than our fair share of the times. We're here to to talk weird diseases, strange illnesses, crazy syndromes, and rare disorders. Before we get started, though, we need our usual disclaimers. First and foremost, we are not doctors, nurses, or medical professionals on this podcast. Please, please, please do not take anything we say on the show as medical advice. I am not trying to treat you, diagnose you, or fix any of your medical conditions. If you have an issue, please see your doctor. Don't guess or take what I say on this podcast as a diagnostic tool. We just want to talk about all the fun, weird, and wild parts of the medical world in the past, present, and the future. Let's jump right in. Uh, I've got some interesting stuff for you guys today. I'm going to start out with an article about the culprit behind all the vaping illnesses lately. I know we've spoken in earlier podcasts about vaping and how dangerous it appears to be at present, but it seems as though they may have found one of the culprits to find out what's making all these people sick. This article came out a couple weeks ago and it's titled CDC makes breakthrough on vaping crisis names vitamin E oil as potential culprit. Abby Haglage wrote this article. As cases of vaping-related illnesses reach about 2,000, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have announced a breakthrough in the search for a cause that first identified the toxicants, vitamin E acetate. The news comes in a study released recently in the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, which analyzed fluid from the lungs of 29 patients with e-cigarette or vaping products used that were associated with lung injuries in 10 different states. While the majority of those analyzed tested positive to either THC, it was 82% of those people, or nicotine, 61%, the only substance that seemed to have been universally detected in every single sample of patients was vitamin E acetate. The new findings are significant because for the first time they have detected a potential toxin of concern, says one of the doctors involved in this. These findings provide direct evidence of vitamin E acetate in, at the primary site of injury within the lungs and the samples reflect patients from states across the country to date. But they are also quick to point out that vitamin E acetate may just be one of many toxicants that are creating these problems. 39 of the cases that were reported have been fatal. Testing is still underway to try to figure out if there's any other substance that may potentially be involved. Some of the other things they're looking at are plant oil, mineral oil, petroleum-based oil, and MCT oil, although it appears that none of these have shown any sort of toxicity or connection to any of these cases altogether. So what exactly is vitamin E acetate, and how concerned should you be about this? Vitamin E itself is a hugely beneficial nutrient that impacts everything from reproduction to skin. It is found in leafy vegetables, olive oil, nuts, and some dairy products, and it is considered safe to consume in food as well as take in supplement form. Vitamin E acetate is a naturally derived supplement of vitamin E that's commonly used in skincare products as well, like face creams and serums. It is full of antioxidants and it its apparent benefits include fighting the effects of aging and sun damage, as well as providing protection from UV rays. 
Although doctors have approved vitamin E for consumption and vitamin E acetate for use on skin, the CDC's new report suggests that the substance can prove dangerous when inhaled. The CDC described it as a known additive that has been known to be used on the black market to dilute or thicken the liquid in e-cigarette or THC vaping products. Vitamin E acetate is enormously sticky, says doctors associated with these studies. You can think of it as being just like honey, so when it goes into the lungs, it hangs around for a while. But the next step is to figure out why and how this additive is interfering with lung function and to figure out what they can do to fix this issue. Those diagnosed with the problems that are associated with vaping often report symptoms that mimic pneumonia, like a severe cough, shortness of breath, difficulty breathing, and fever. But we cannot blame vitamin E conclusively until additional studies have found that causal link. So very interesting. We will keep our eye on that and report back to you guys as updates on this continue to come in. But now I want to kind of switch gears and move on to a topic that is near and dear to my heart. And that is, what does the time change do to your body when daylight savings ends? And I'm talking about this because it recently happened. We usually have the time change at the beginning of November and it's spring ahead, fall back. So we fell back an hour this year. So I found this article called What Happens to Your Body When Daylight Savings Time Ends, Experts Explain. And it came out in October, and Rachel Grumman Bender was the author of this article. It's that time of year again. On Sunday, November 3rd at 2 a.m., daylight savings time ends, and we set our clocks back an hour. So that happened a few weeks ago. Even though we're gaining an hour and there tends to be more health risks, including a temporary higher rate of heart attacks in the spring when daylight saving time starts and we lose an hour, the fall time change can still have some surprising effects on our health. One of those effects is that your stroke risk goes up. Like many people, our bodies do not like change and simply moving the clock back or ahead one hour temporarily increases the risk of strokes, according to a 2016 Finnish study. Ischemic stroke, which is the most common type of stroke, is caused by a clot logging a clot blocking blood flow to the brain, according to the American Academy of Neurology. During the first two days after daylight savings time transitions, researchers found that the overall rate of strokes went up by 8%. This risk was particularly high for people over the age of 65, whose risk of stroke went up by 20% after the time change. The good news is, is that these rates return to normal after about two days. But it appears that the increased risk of stroke is caused by a disruption in the circadian rhythm, which is very interesting. This is our body's internal clock. When there is a sudden change in the timing of environmental cues like daylight savings time, traveling through time zones, work shifts, a synchrony issue occurs between your internal circadian clocks and our behaviors like our sleep-wake cycle. This is because there's a lag in the resetting of our internal clocks. Doctors and experts explain there is a golden rule that it takes about one full day for our internal clocks to adjust for every hour of time change, just like with jet lag. But not all clocks are equal. Some rest faster than others. Typically, the central clock in our body, located in a special brain region called the suprasmatic nucleus, resets relatively quick quickly, while the clock in the heart resets much lower. This means that during the resetting period following the abrupt change in the environment, 
This dysynchrony also occurs between the different organs in our body. This is interesting, though, because your heart attack risk goes down. That 60-minute time change has a big impact on your heart health. While the risk of having a heart attack goes up when daylight savings time starts in the spring, it actually goes down when the time change ends in the fall. A study published in the journal BMJ showed a 24% jump in heart attack risk the Monday after daylight savings time kicks off. But the same study found that the heart attack risk dropped 21% on the Tuesday after returning to standard time in the fall, possibly because people get an additional hour of sleep. You might not know it, but your risks of a car accident are also more likely during daylight savings time. While car accident rates, including fatal ones, are higher when daylight savings time starts in the spring, thanks to the lack of sleep from losing an hour, research is showing that car accidents can also go up after the time change ends in the fall, and this is likely due to it getting darker earlier. Driving in the evening is more dangerous, although people only spend a quarter of their driving time at night, it accounts for 50% of traffic deaths, according to the National Safety Council. Your sleep cycle may also be thrown off, and this kind of seems like a no-brainer. Although you're technically getting an hour back, experts say a change in the timing of our sleep, even by just an hour, can result in feelings of jet lag until we adjust to the new change. As a result, we can feel sluggish and sleepy during the day and have difficulty concentrating while adjusting to the change. But there is some good news. A benefit of the time change in the fall is earlier exposure to daylight, which can help to synchronize circadian rhythms to the new time. Depression. That is something that also tends to pop up around daylight savings time. Depression diagnosis is tend to increase immediately after we go from daylight savings to standard time, according to Danish studies. Researchers analyzed more than 185,000 reports of depression logged into the country's Central Psychiatric Research Register between 95 and 2012, and they found that the number of people diagnosed with depression during the month after daylight savings time ends was 8% higher than expected. Granted, the study focused on people dealing with severe depression, but the study authors told Science Daily there's no reason to believe that seasonal time change only affects those more vulnerable to severe forms of the mood disorder. We expect the entire spectrum of severity is affected by the transition from daylight savings time to standard time, say the experts. They also added, furthermore, the transition to standard time is likely to be associated with a negative psychological effect, as it very clearly marks the coming of a period of long, dark, and cold days. In order to sort of counteract this, some of the states are trying to end daylight savings time changes. And if you're not a fan of adjusting your clocks, you're not alone. Arizona and Hawaii are the only states that don't observe daylight savings time, but others are looking to follow suit. California in particular has tried to get this on the ballot for a very long time, and it looks like it's making a little bit of progress with respect to that. So here are a few things you can do to help your body adjust to the time change when it happens. Start by delaying your bedtime and wake time in 15-minute increments in the days leading up to the time change, experts say. Maintain a dark bedroom environment during the morning to encourage sleeping until your typical wake-up time. Light exposure during the evening can help with staying awake until your typical bedtime. However, try to limit bright light exposure and electronic use within an hour of going to bed. The experts are pointing out our internal clocks are reset by both environmental and behavioral cues. 
These include light, physical activity, and food intake. Different organs appear to be more responsive to one or more of these cues. So one way to reset all clocks in the body is to challenge your body with with all three of these cues simultaneously. This would mean when you wake up, eat a decent breakfast, expose yourself to light, and be physically active. Very interesting indeed. I've always kind of been curious about that. What daylight savings really, what if anything daylight savings really does to your body. Very cool. Um, I'm going to jump over to another topic that is pretty hot during this time of the year, and that is flu shots. A lot of people are out there being encouraged to get flu shots and places like the Mayo Clinic advocate for that. So I found this one on the Mayo Clinic website, and it says flu shot, your best bet for avoiding influenza. This year's annual flu shot will offer protection against three or four of the influenza viruses expected to be in circulation this flu season. A high-dose flu vaccine will also be available for adults age 65 and over. Influenza is a respiratory infection that can cause serious complications, particularly in young children, older adults, and people with certain medical conditions. Getting an influenza shot, though, may not be 100% effective, despite the fact that what many people think. But it is the best way to prevent the misery of flu and complications if there's nothing else available. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, recommends that anyone six months of age or older be vaccinated annually against influenza. Here are the answers to some common questions about flu shots. When is the flu vaccine available? The flu vaccine is made by private manufacturers and takes about six months to produce. The availability of the flu vaccine depends on when production is completed, but generally shipments begin in August. Doctors and nurses are encouraged to begin vaccinating people as soon as the flu vaccine is available in their area. It takes about two weeks to build immunity after a flu shot, but you can benefit from the vaccine even if you don't get it until after the flu season starts. It's usually best for people in the U.S. to get their flu vaccine by the end of October. However, you can still protect yourself against late flu outbreaks if you get the vaccine in February or later. Why do I need to get vaccinated every year? And it's because flu viruses evolve so quickly that last year's vaccine may not protect you from this year's viruses. New flu vaccines are released every year to keep up with rapidly adapting flu viruses. When you get vaccinated, your immune system produces antibodies to protect you from the viruses included in the vaccine. But antibody levels may decline over time. And this is another reason why you should get a flu shot every year. Who should get the flu shot? Uh, The CDC recommends annual influenza vaccinations for anyone age six months or older. Vaccination is especially important for people in high risk, including pregnant women, older adults and young children. Children between six months and eight years may also need two doses of the flu vaccine, given at least four weeks apart to be fully protected. Chronic medical conditions also increase your risk for influenza complications. These include asthma, cancer, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, cystic fibrosis, diabetes, HIV, AIDS, kidney or liver disease, and obesity. So there are some people who shouldn't get a flu shot, and they might want to check with their doctor before getting the flu vaccine if you're allergic to eggs if you, or if you've had a severe reaction to a previous flu vaccine. Can the vaccine give me the flu? 
And the answer to this is no, the flu vaccine can't give you the flu, but you might develop flu-like symptoms despite getting a flu vaccine for a variety of reasons, including a reaction to the vaccine. Some people experience muscle aches and a fever for a day or two after receiving the flu vaccine. This may be a side effect of your body's production of protective antibodies. The two-week window, it takes about two weeks for the flu shot to take full effect. If you're exposed to the influenza virus shortly before or during that time period, you still might catch the flu flu. Or you could have a mismatched flu virus. In some years, the influenza viruses used for the vaccine don't match the viruses circulating during flu season. If this occurs, your flu shot may be less affected, but may still offer some protection. And then other illnesses, such as the common cold, can also produce flu-like symptoms. So you may think you have the flu, but you actually don't. And then can I lower my risk of the flu without getting a flu shot? And it says the flu vaccine is your best defense against the flu, but there are additional steps you can take to help protect yourself from the flu and other viruses. These steps include the following. Wash your hands often and thoroughly with soap and water. Use an alcohol-based sanitizer on your hands if soap and water aren't available. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, or mouth whenever possible. Avoid crowds when the flu is most prevalent in your area. Practice good health habits. Get plenty of sleep exercise regularly, drink plenty of fluids, eat a nutritious diet, and manage your stress. You can also help prevent the spread of flu by staying home if you do get sick. So adding to that, I found this other article that sort of talks about the effectiveness of the flu shots and how they may be less effective this year. I found this article, it came out October 16, 2019, by the TVR staff, and that is the vaccinereaction.org website. Just as publicity about the need for everyone to get a flu shot ramps up, there are signs that the influence of vaccine for this flu season, 2019 and 2020, may be less effective than last year. The strains of the influenza virus selected by the World Health Organization and the U.S. health officials for vaccine manufacturers may turn out to be a mismatch, according to scientists who are looking at this. Each year, the WHO recommends strains of the virus to be included in the vaccinations. They include one strain for the Northern Hemisphere and one strain for the Southern Hemisphere. But the thing is, they're sort of guessing as to what they think might be popular during that particular period. But it now appears that the WHO's predictions might end up being off the mark this year, which means the flu shot this season could be less effective than it was last year. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimated that influenza vaccine was only about 29% effective during the 2018 and 2019 flu season, and only 9% during the second half of the season, which is pretty frightening considering the fact that most people probably think when they get that shot that it's 100% effective. The CDC estimates the effectiveness of the flu shot usually ranges between 40 to 50 percent. During the 2004, 2005, 2006, 2015, and 2016 flu seasons, the vaccine was only 10 percent effective, 21 percent effective, and 19 percent effective, respectively. So each year, they basically have to guess which strains are going to be the most prevalent because the influenza virus changes so rapidly. Historically speaking, they've had a problem ever since the vaccine was first used a few decades ago because they have a trouble 
estimating which strains to do for this vaccination. And this has been a reoccurring problem. And I think it's very interesting because I think when most people go to get their flu shots, they probably think, I'm getting this and it's going to be 100% effective, or I'm getting this and it's going to be 80 or 90% effective. I don't think most people understand that it's 50% or less in effectiveness. So if you are not in the sort of environment where you're around small children or you're exposed to this virus on a regular basis, it probably save your money. It's probably not worth it to get it. In my opinion, I've never had the flu and I've never had the flu shot and I just don't see any reason to get it now. I also am slightly suspicious about something that is created by private manufacturers and we are told that we need to have it each and every year. That kind of makes me wonder, like, do we really need it? Is this really something that is medically necessary, particularly if you've never had the flu and you're not in a high exposure type of a situation? So I guess we'll keep an eye on that and keep you guys posted on updates with respect to the flu shot and how effective it really is. Something else that kind of goes hand in hand with that is vitamin use. I think particularly during this time of the year, people tend to think that upping their vitamin dosage is really going to help them prevent illness. And I found this article on YaleScientific.org and it's Mythbusters, Does Vitamin C Really Help? And it was by Christina Yu. Vitamin C has long been touted for its supposed ability to treat the common cold. When sickness sets in, many of us immediately turn to vitamin C products like supplement pills, juices, and cough drops. But does vitamin C really help us prevent and recover from the cold, or is it simply popular due to a widespread misbelief? Most scientists agree that vitamin C is not an effective treatment for the common cold. In a study by researchers at the University of Toronto, subjects were divided into two groups, an experimental group that received vitamin C pills at the onset of cold symptoms and a control group that received a placebo pill. After several months, the researchers assessed the effectiveness of the pills based on the number of colds and days of sickness experienced by individuals in each group. They found the participants who had received the vitamin C pills were not significantly healthier than those who took the placebos. Numerous other studies have confirmed this result, which leads us to question, why does the myth of vitamin C as a healing agent persist? Today's popular belief that vitamin C can treat the common cold originated from claims made by influential American chemist Linus Pauling during the 1960s. Pauling said that after regularly taking high doses of vitamin C, he felt livelier and healthier and no longer experienced cold symptoms. His book on the subject, Vitamin C and the Common Cold, became an instant bestseller. By the mid-1970s, an estimated 50 million Americans were using vitamin C to treat colds and drug store sales of vitamin C products had quadrupled. That vitamin C is good for you is not unfounded. It is an essential nutrient for keeping our bodies healthy. Vitamin C is a natural antioxidant and is needed for the growth of tissues in the body like your skin, your blood vessels, and your bone. It is also essential in the synthesis of collagen, a critical component of connective tissue that helps wounds heal. Citrus fruits, red and green peppers, watermelon, and leafy greens are among the best sources of vitamin C. The University of Toronto study found some notable benefits of vitamin C as well. Subjects who received vitamin C pills took approximately 30 fewer disability days off work from work compared to those who did not take the pills. According to researchers, one possible explanation is that vitamin C lowers the severity of cold symptoms like, cold, like chills and coughs. 
Still, more research would be needed to confirm this theory. Additionally, evidence suggests that soldiers, professional athletes, and others who undergo highly stressful situations could receive an immune system boost from vitamin C. In one study, subjects in a high-stress subgroup who took vitamin C supplements experienced a 50% reduction in the instance of common cold. But these findings do not support vitamin C as an effective cold treatment. In fact, at least 15 other studies can corroborate the results published by the University of Toronto researchers debunking the vitamin C myth by uncovering evidence against it. At the University of Maryland, researchers recruited healthy volunteers and gave them either vitamin C or placebo pills. They then infected both sets of volunteers with a common cold virus and found that all of the volunteers developed colds and similar symptoms and durations. As a consequence of the study and other related research, leading medical advisory groups, including the Food and Drug Administration, the American Medical Association, and the American Dietetic Association do not recommend supplemental vitamin C to prevent and treat colds. There are still plenty of ways to cope with a common cold season, though. Get your sleep, drink your fluids, eat nutritious meals, and manage your stress. All of these habits contribute to a long-term good health and proper immune system functioning. Wash your hands frequently, as we mentioned, to avoid getting those germs built up. And frequent exercise can stimulate the movement of immune cells through the body, which fortifies your body's immune system defenses. Despite the myth deeply entrenched in our culture, vitamin C is not a go-to solution for the common cold. The human body and its relationship to nutrition are far too complex for a single vitamin to cure sickness. When the cold hits, an ideal solution might just be the traditional one. Sit under a blanket with hot tea and some of that chicken noodle soup, read a book, and let the sickness run its course. So here's another one that I found very interesting, and this is something that I was always told when I was growing up was beneficial to preventing sickness during the cold and flu season, and that's echinacea. And I found this article on health.com, and it's called, What is Echinacea and Can It Really Help a Cold? Cassandra Braba wrote this article, and it came out in February of this year. So you have the sniffles. Usually that's not too big of a deal, but you also have an important meeting this week, or you're just packing up a suitcase to go on vacation, or you're getting married, or you're doing anything else that makes having a cold really inconvenient. The point is you want the symptoms to go away and fast. Maybe you've heard that echinacea, a natural supplement sometimes made in tea, syrup, and oil, can help. But as with all supplements, the science is a little iffy. Before you run out and down a glass of echinacea tea, take a look at what the research says. First of all, first of all what is echinacea? It is a purple coneflower and a type of plant with nine known species native to North America. Native Americans have long used the flower to treat things like toothaches, colds, coughs, sore throats, and snake bites. The flower is thought to have a significant immune-boosting and anti-inflammatory properties, say some doctors. Because of the supposed anti-inflammatory and immune-boosting properties, echinacea continues to be used as an herbal supplement today. But will echinacea really help your cold? The few studies that have actually been done on echinacea suggest the plant may shorten a common cold at least a little bit. The best scientific evidence involves a plant's ability to reduce the length of a cold when started at the onset of symptoms. 
say doctors. There have been quite a few studies with positive outcomes in this regard. The key is to start those echinacea pills or the tea at the onset of symptoms, which means you'll need to start taking an echinacea at the first sign of a sniffle if you want to see any benefits. Even still, there is a very small chance that taking the supplement is going to get you better in time for an important meeting that's only a day or two away. Echinacea can shorten the lifespan of a cold, but it's not a miracle cure. It won't make you feel less lousy or feel great overnight. Usually someone would need to take echinacea for three or four times a day for up to seven, for seven to 14 days. And this could shorten the course of the illness by one or two days and decrease the severity of symptoms. So it's not going to get rid of it and it's not going to fix it super quick, but it will reduce the time that you have that cold. Shortening a cold by a day or two sounds pretty good. So you may be ready to run to the drugstore and buy some echinacea. But these results haven't been consistent across studies, so there's no guarantee that taking echinacea will affect you that way. Some studies have shown only a half-day reduction in cold duration and a small, basically insignificant reduction in symptom severity. Overall, there isn't a big enough body of research on echinacea to prove that it does or does not help fight colds. So is echinacea safe? The supplement industry is not well-regulated, so you can't be 100% sure that any echinacea pill or tea you're picking up is the pure, unadulterated product. As with many supplements, ensuring a quality product is very difficult, doctors say. Adulteration, substitution, and products of poor quality have a very have always been a long-standing problem with echinacea products. And then there's the trouble that no two echinacea supplements are created equal. Echinacea pills, oils, teas, and syrups may all contain different species of the plant, different parts, the petals, the stems, the leaves, etc., and may be manufactured in different ways or have other ingredients added. And all of this may impact how effective the supplement you choose will be. Still, if you want to give it a try, most of the supplements seem to be pretty safe some people report nausea or stomach pain with echinacea, and in one clinical trial, some children who took echinacea syrup developed a rash. But most people have no side effects with these supplements. And taking echinacea is generally considered safe even when combined with other supplements or medications meant to treat your cold. So should you take echinacea? Bottom line, go ahead and take it if you want to. There are very few risks involved, and it might even have a slight benefit. It's unlikely that taking echinacea supplement or drinking some echinacea tea will make you feel 100% better, but it might help you get over your cold faster. And as always, it's a good idea to chat with your doctor before trying any new supplements or if you really do feel bad because something else might be going on. So it's better to get your doctor's advice on these issues as well. This is the point in the podcast where we say goodbye for now. So long farewell. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to shoot us an email. We're at hypoalmapodcast at gmail.com. We'll throw that into the show notes. You can also check out our Instagram page, which is podcast.addict, and that is on Insta and Twitter. We post some cool stuff and pictures on there. And please join us again next week when we talk more about strange medical news, conditions, and treatments. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay healthy, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye.